deliberately evade the word evolution because really and truly the evolutionary theory, if you hold to the what, of course the word evolution has to be defined. But if by evolution you take what's usually considered by the word evolution today, and that is a uh, an absolute chance development from the uh, molecule to man, if that's the definition of evolution, it's the one that's common one today, then the reason it is held is because of the final reality being viewed as only material energy shaped by pure chance. I mean, evolution is a corollary to that. So I would say, I think we should be, of course, standing against this teaching. But it shouldn't become just kind of a, a bare shibboleth in a vacuum. That we should realize the reason the postulation is made is because of the primary mistake. And the primary mistake is the uh, is what the final reality is. So I think that's what the, where the basic battle must be for it. And as I said in this lecture, every single thing that we deplore in what's happening in our own day, uh, without any question, uh, springs uh, with absolute certainty that it will come from it mathematically from this view that that is the final reality. Now, of course, when one is dealing with evolution, one has to be careful with terms, and often I feel that uh, the Lord's people haven't been careful with terms, just as the way they've confused some of the writers who have sort of picked up after how should we then live and use the term humanism, have used it very uh, without care, and have confused uh, the word humanism and humanitarianism and uh, specifically the humanities. And we must always be careful to make our definitions of what we mean. So in this area, the Christians should be the most humanitarian of people, which means you care for other people. And my whole work for the last 40-some years is dedicated to the fact that Christians should be interested in the humanities, and that Christianity has something to say about the humanities, and to downplay the humanities, to downplay the importance of human creativity. Uh, these things are to not only the wrong, again missing the Lordship of Christ in these areas, but also that in this confusion we, uh, what we do is to bring scorn on our discussion and a chance to uh, the real battle against humanism is man being the measure of all things to be uh, just thrown aside. Now you've got to be careful with evolution too because the word evolution can mean several things. Uh, it, can mean, uh, it can mean the fact that there are changes, uh, small changes along the way or changes along the way. Evolution, however, uh, in the term in which we stand against it, is rooted in what, as I say, the bringing forth by pure chance uh, the, an unbroken continuum from uh, the molecule uh, to man. But there could be small changes. Another thing I think that we must realize is that there, uh, there are those who are theistic evolutionists. No, I'm not. The reason I'm not a theistic evolutionist is because I don't think science shows us it supports it by any means. Uh, but it would be possible for a person to be a theistic evolutionist, as I point out in, which book was it? I guess, No Final Conflict. It was either No Final Conflict or the Genesis in Space and Time. Uh, I don't think that I couldn't be it, 
Then, of course, then you have to put limitations on that, though. You would still have to emphasize that there was a historic space-time fall, and you would have to emphasize the fact that Adam and Eve were real people, and you would have to emphasize that God then would be working and not just chance. Uh, and I've never known a theistic evolutionist that I've known. I guess maybe they exist, but I haven't met one who would hold this and then hold that uh, there is such a thing as a fall, historic space-time fall and time before the fall, uh, because this would put you out of uh, step as uh, as thoroughly uh, with the uh, with the modern trend of what evolution in this the other description, the proper description that we're standing against. What the people who hold that, this would, if you hold to a historic space-time fall, would put you just as much out of uh, out of favor with these people and with the school boards or something as somebody who didn't hold evolution at all. So I don't know if anybody holds this view, but you've got to be careful in the discussion. Then the next thing that I would say, and it's very imperative, is what should we be standing for? And I realize, of course, that the uh, I realize, of course, that in the uh, much of the discussion at the present time, uh, that the questions of, of whether the, there's a young Earth or an old Earth are brought in, the questions of flood geology, a uh, question of a literal 24 days or not. But one must realize that though Christians uh, have the right to have their opinions about these things, these are not the central issue. They're not the central issue. The central issue is a creator in contrast to the final reality being eternal energy or, or uh, material shaped by pure chance. And uh, those of you who have read my Genesis in Space and Time know that I feel that there's some, there must be some open questions left here. And I do think that some of the cases that have been fought uh, in regard to evolution have been confused, legal cases, uh, because of the uh, it, the case hasn't been kept to the central thing, but is also brought in uh, as an equal uh, definitive position uh, concerning such a thing as the young earth or concerning the old earth. And Christians can differ about this, and it shouldn't be a part of the issue. The issue is creation versus chance, final reality being a personal God versus the other. This is the thing we should be struggling for. And I think it is absolutely right that the... Uh, that there should be in the public schools the possibility of the double model, as it's usually called, of teaching the fact of teaching the uh, uh, both models using the term that's now being used in the legal discussions uh, of the uh, possibility of uh, evolution. I mean, on just the level which we're talking now in the way it would be presented, and the possibility of a creator. And the tyranny comes that it's only one model that is allowed to be taught. This is absolute tyranny. That the Christian who wants to teach the other model is not allowed to teach the other model. This is tyranny. Def definitely tyranny. And we've lost the Arkansas case, and there can be some discussion as to why it was lost, that I mentioned in the first editions of the... Uh, a Christian manifesto, and I changed in the later editions, after we printed 55,000, I changed it because the case had been lost, and so I brought it up to date. Uh, 
But the main reason we lost the Arkansas case is because we, we were fighting not only the uh, Civil Liberties Union, but the judge. It was very easy. The judge was completely biased. And the judge made strong, stronger statements against the, uh, the idea of a creator as the, uh, as the opposing lawyers did. The thing to be praying about now is the Louisiana case which is in the hands of Wendell Byrd and uh, John Whitehead, the book, the author of the book, Second American Revolution, and Wendell Byrd is, are the lawyers for the Louisiana case. And naturally, we've been in correspondence with each other. And I have uh, every hope that we, we might do better on the Louisiana case. But what we would be asking for then is in this present pluralistic society, is the possibility of teaching the double model. And I think we should have this, and if we don't have this, it's tyranny. And then I would end, however, by saying that uh, in doing it, in fighting it, we must fight uh, in a way that is uh, variable, and I think also uh, proper to the scripture, and that is holding to these central things and not getting involved in the three debatable things of a young earth or an old earth, a uh, 24-hour day or not, uh, and the, uh, then the further out one of flood geology. These certainly shouldn't be brought into the argument at all. They simply don't bear on the question. I don't know if this answers your question, but I've tried to. Yes? Is it possible to effectively and rationally convince portions of the public to return to the Judeo-Christian ethic or consensus that of absolutes, you know, by showing them the logic and the, the cause and effect relationship between what assumptions we have and what has resulted from them, is it possible to show them that without the gospel in as much as that man has to acknowledge his rebellion against God in general? Well, I, we always, this is a good question. I'm glad you've asked it. Because if we're going to do something when we go out from here and scatter to the 50 states and to the all uh, provinces of Canada, if we're really going to do something, we have to think through what we're, what we're talking about. And the first thing to realize is that the word Christian has two different meanings, both of which are proper, as long as they're not confused. And the first and the proper central meaning is a man or a woman who has accepted Christ as Savior. This is Christian. But the word Christian can be properly used in another way as long as it isn't confused with the first. And that is a person who is not a Christian but functioning on a Christian thought form. Even though really he's inconsistent or she's inconsistent in doing so. Um, I would say Jefferson among the founding fathers would probably be a, a very good illustration of this. Uh, as far as everything that I've ever been able to find out, Jefferson was a real deist. He wasn't a Christian. I, unless he was saved later in life, I don't expect to find Jefferson in heaven. And yet he was functioning on the Christian mentality. So you can say he was functioning on the idea of a creator, nature and nature's God. Uh, and as such, this was Christian thinking, even though he wasn't Christian. Now, along with that, we must recognize that 
then we're, we're, we're on working on two levels. And I find this very difficult and it takes thinking through and then acting on it consciously. First of all, we know that unless there is a, uh, unless people really are Christian, and uh, I would just say that it's possible to be born again without being Christian in your thinking too, unhappily. It can be reversed to Jefferson. And this whole thing that has governed so much of, uh, of the church, of a poor view of pietism, or a, few, poor, a false view of pietism rather, and a poor view of spirituality, of seeing just be saved and go to heaven. Or what can I get out of it in some way? Though it might not be expressed that way. Uh, rather than Christ as Savior, I mean as Lord of the whole of life. This is non-Christian thinking by a Christian is completely as Jefferson's might think in the Christian thought form even though he was non-Christian. It has to be kept separate. Very clear. Now, if we're really going to make a difference, we have to swing back toward a Christian consensus. Christian consensus would mean uh, a certain number of people who are really Christian and then who think consistently as Christians, uh, which uh, we have a lot of Christians in this country who, who never think consistently as Christians at all in reference uh, to the arts or music or intellectual life, cognitive things, uh, nor government law. So if you're going to, if we're really going to make a, make a difference, that, that's true. We have to have people, A, who are born again, and B, people who are taught to think of the Lordship of Christ and the whole of life, which I must say an awful lot of churches never touch on in a lifetime. Um, but now, with that, one has to think of another thing, and that is one does not have to have a majority of the population in order to influence the culture. The communists learned that long ago. Communists with a very small percentage uh, have been able to influence the uh, government and the culture of many, many countries because they know what they're after. They thought it through, and people, there's some of the people work with real, uh, real sacrifice uh, and fervor. So, so therefore, in the first level, we would have to have born-again people, and we would have to have them really thinking in a Christian form, way instead of a, a, a truncated Christianity, but you wouldn't have to have uh, 50%. I, my personal opinion is we have enough born-again Christians in this country, if they'd really begin to function in a Christian way, you know, the totality of life, and be willing to pay the price necessary uh, for making uh, a change in our uh, culture, uh, we have enough people right now so that we could begin to make, a real, make real, real steps forward. It's not that the people aren't there, it's that they don't do anything about it. The um, second thing, though, then you come to the next step, and that is you must recognize that no matter what people say they are, they're not what they say they are, they are what they are. I think that's why uh, evangelism is possible or non-Christians painting beauty, or non-Christians having beautiful love affairs, uh, being uh, showing love. 
and some of the virtues that humanity is called upon to show, even though they're not Christians. Or you can state it negatively, as I do in some of my books, such as Back to Freedom and Dignity, of the factor that a people who say they're only machines, like Francis Crick and Freud, let us say, and Skinner, I'll just choose those three as representative, uh, they can't live that way. And the reason they can't live that way is that no matter what people say they are, they're not what they say they are, even if they are like Francis Crick and are more or less try to be consistent in determinism. Uh, they can't really live this way because now whether what they say they are, they're what they are, and that is they're made in the image of God. This is the reason you can have, you can reach out to people and, on a human relationship in evangelism, let us say. It is also the reason, however, that you would get a man like Abramson, whose book is in the bookstore, Aborting America. Uh, here you have a man who is an atheist, and uh, he was probably the doctor that did more than any other doctor for bringing in the abortion law. And he acknowledges having supervised 75,000 abortions. It's a lot of babies to kill. And yet, uh, a certain number of years ago, not because he became a Christian, but because of sheer, the sheer new technical developments in medicine, of being able to see the baby through sonar devices and so on, he really realized this was a human being. Consequently, he wrote the book Aborting America. I would say in parenthesis, in regard to this matter of a hidden censorship, uh, that uh, that book never was reviewed in any of the national magazines. It's very interesting. Uh, none of them. Time, none of them, nothing. Nothing ever reviewed Aborting America. End of parenthesis. But here you have a man now, and you have other people, who don't have a sufficient base for a high view of human life, or some of these other things. And we realize and see they're inconsistent. And yet, at the particular moment, because of their humanness, uh, they are right on the individual issue. Now, what are, you, what are you going to do? Well, I would suggest to you all that what has been most helpful to me is the choice of two words, ally and co-belligerent. And it saved me from many a bump in the nose, and it will you, I think. An ally to me is a person who is a, has a Christian base, uh, and I can go a long way down the road with him. I may not be able to go all the way down the road with him, because we might differ on certain points. I'll just choose something, baptism and infant baptism, if you're going to build a Presbyterian or a Baptist church. So you, you have differences. But you, as an ally, you can go a long way down the road. That's an ally. A co-belligerent to me is a man who uh, may not have, and in all probability will not have, a completely logical base for his position on the, as being a non-Christian like Abramson. And yet, nevertheless, he's taking the right position at a given issue. Now, I can work shoulder by shoulder with him, and I should work shoulder to shoulder with him, for the change on that issue realizing, that, however, that it's only on that one issue. So consequently, we have tremendous potential in this country. We have the potential of those who are Christians, if they would only be stirred, and be willing to pray, pay, understood, understand what they're supposed to believe and act on and act upon it, and you have all the co-belligerents. 
Because you have a lot of people of goodwill. Just because you're lost, people are lost and sinners and need Christ as Savior, doesn't mean that in certain areas there may not be people of goodwill on certain issues. Well, now the thing to do is to find these people and on these particular issues, join together and make a change uh, into the whole situation. Yet always realizing, and this is what is always sobering to me, always realizing that in a sense it's temporary, in a sense it is partial, or maybe the better word is incomplete. It is incomplete unless the people are functioning on the basis of being Christians and really understanding the Lordship of Christ. But it doesn't mean static. We have tremendous opportunities. I'll give you an illustration. Christians can be silly people. And I think we often are silly here. But I'll give you an illustration. Let's say I lived in a suburb of uh, Minneapolis. I'll choose Minneapolis. And the sewer water was getting into the uh, water pipes. Uh, and every one of my neighbors would, would be an atheist. Couldn't I sign a petition to clear up the water pipes? I don't have to wait for them being Christians. <laughs> And I think we must see it exactly the same way here. Just exactly. So I, I'm, always, I'm always functioning on two levels. Um, and as you know, I work with people and up and down the ladder. But uh, I'm always functioning on two levels. I realize it's incomplete. It doesn't give me uh, happiness for the individual unless they see them become Christians. And then I must say it doesn't give me happiness for the sake of Christ either if they're Christians and not thinking in a total Christian fashion of Christ being the Lord of all of life. So I'm struggling for that, and I realize it's incomplete until you come to that. And yet, on the other hand, it doesn't mean that I'm not willing to work with people of good will at a particular thing as a co-belligerent. I, I think we could get an awful lot done if we just keep it unscrambled in our own mind and we begin to do it. And then I think Christians ought to provide the leadership for it. For instance, I'll choose something other than abortion. Lots of, uh, lots of lawyers in this country and lots of uh, uh, the people who are cognitive and intellectual are scared to death at the growing arbitrary power of the Supreme Court. It isn't only Christians, by any means. Well, you ought to be able to join together and do something about it. And yet all the time, you know it's incomplete until you're able to lead the person to Christ. And yet, nevertheless, it would be right to fight with this person, even if you could never lead him to Christ, even though that would make you sad. Now, this is the way I see it. We should see it on these two levels, and then I think we can get something accomplished. Yes. Dr. Schaefer, we uh, stand against uh, abortion and euthanasia and infanticide, and what would be... Uh, justification for our basis then in terms of including capital punishment as an option in our system? I think, I think there's a great difference in that we were the other night when I answered the question about, about war and pacifism. Who asked the question? Did you? Uh, yes, but tonight who asked the question? Were you here when I was? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, well, there's a parallel, so I won't repeat it. But you must realize that in the case of capital punishment, in the case of capital punishment in the first place, it is made plain. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily that we must have capital punishment, 
uh, automatically, but it's made plain, just as in the cases parallel that with the thing I spoke of war, that when you go to the Bible, the Bible teaches uh, there is a place for capital punishment. And the reason that in the time of Noah the capital punishment was commanded is because the crime is so overwhelming in taking a human life because of the uniqueness of human life as made in the image of God and therefore in the covenant made with Noah God specifically says that there, there is to be capital punishment for this, uh, for this crime. Then we must realize that the, um, the drift against capital punishment today that uh, you must turn something over in your mind. Remember, I'm saying now, I'm not discussing at this moment whether uh, at the, a state, for example, must have capital punishment. That's not what I'm discussing. I want to keep that out of all this. Uh, but you must realize that a great deal of the drive today to get rid of capital punishment is allied to accepting abortion. And both things are are uh, united on the basis of a low view of human life with a lot of people. The baby can be killed because they don't believe have a high view of human life and the victim of murder, uh, they do not have a high view of human life of that person's uh, life and the taking of it and therefore they don't see the necessity of the extremity of the punishment which is where God put it in the uh, in Genesis at the time of uh, Moses, uh, of Noah. Um, the next thing to say, of course, is that capital punishment is, uh, is commanded in the Bible at the point of, uh, of severe guilt, where on the other hand, the unborn baby or the newborn baby is the most innocent of the human race. One is killing somebody that everybody agrees is guilty. And on the other hand, you're killing somebody who is the most innocent of the human race. So I don't, see, I don't think the parallel should be drawn. Now, after you've said all that, you could still, what I'm not going into tonight, you could still go on and say whether the state of Delaware or Pennsylvania or something should have capital punishment at the present moment. That's open to discussion. But it shouldn't be made at the, the link isn't where, you, where it was made in the question. And that is that we shouldn't kill the baby, therefore we shouldn't kill the murder. For the reasons I've given. The reason that the murder is, uh, is as heinous is because the baby's life has great value and so does the victim who was killed. That's the parallel, not, the, not in the other direction. So I, there's lots of things still to discuss at it, but, uh, but at either the use of war, as I tried to describe it the other night, after all, war is supposed to be only fought when there's a, a, a guilt, when there is a wrong that can't be resolved in any other way. So with war or capital punishment, to ally this with uh, the question of abortion, the fantasite, or the killing of the aged, uh, seems to me to get the whole picture reversed, that it's linked to our right, but in the other direction that in uh, the case of the victim or the case of the baby or uh, born or unborn or the old person, you're dealing with not a person who is guilty, but a person who is innocent, you're taking their life nevertheless. So this is how I think it should be seen. Yes.
Uh, you've discussed uh, how the public broadcasting system refused to broadcast uh, whatever happened to the human race. I was wondering what about the other logical TV forum? What must be done to, to replace a few beggars on so-called Christian TV with some meaningful shows? I would just say I agree, and then I would just say that some some other programs are trying to do better. You know, you can always be thankful. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't hear that. That's all right. They asked which ones. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, you know that, you know I have difficulties with a lot of these things because I think Christianity is so poor when it's so rich. And uh, Christianity should be re re rooted in truth and the cognitive and not the emotional and the experiential, though I believe there should be emotional and experiential, but it should be rooted in the cognitive and not in the other. You know that's my position. So uh, I have problems. But having said that now, I would say that in the last year or so, Pat Robinson has entered into some of these issues and tried to handle them with uh, sensibility and uh, courage. And that doesn't mean I would agree with the whole program at all. But Pat has tried in some issues. No, I wouldn't agree always the way it's done. I don't look at it a great deal, so I wouldn't want to be held down to... Uh, you know, to saying Schaefer approves of this and that. But having said this, having said this, I must admit that it seems to me that in that particular case, now I'm choosing that one, but you asked me, so I've chosen one. Uh, he has entered in with courage, and I know at cost to himself, incidentally, financially, uh, by entering into these things, that he's, that he's had financial, some financial problems, I understand. And he didn't tell me this, but I understand it so, uh, because some of his audience would rather would have only the emotional and the experiential. So I think this would be an example of somebody who, where the program has improved, not in all its aspects, but in these specific aspect, uh, aspects in the last couple of years. And, and you, as I say, you must be thankful for the improvement. And none of that would minimize the fact that we have, uh, and it isn't only TV, though, and radio. It's a lot of the pulpits, an awful lot of trashy Christianity. I would agree, totally. But you, but you mustn't generalize too much, is what I would say. Yes? Dr. Schaefer, I'm sure that you like to stay with uh, the big picture on many issues, but uh, something to maybe be just a little bit more specific on, uh, could you uh, give a little bit of a, uh, a biblical basis for maybe your view of uh, things like uh, surrogate motherhood, artificial insemination by husband and by donor, and uh, birth control that does not use aborting methods? So that I've never heard any Christian ever give some principles mm. to help develop some convictions. Yeah, I'd, that is I'd be glad to. What was your first point? Surrogate motherhood, uh, artificial insemination, uh, yeah, tattoo babies. I understood all the others, but the first is still not clear to me. Surrogate motherhood? Surrogate. Okay, it was surrogate I didn't get. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, let's, let's start with uh, birth control, because I realized that, of course, 
that say in the Roman with the Roman Catholics, birth control and uh, uh, abortion are always linked, and with some Protestants. But I would say these two things ought to be kept separate, even if the individual Christian was not in favor of birth control. So I say without any reservation that I personally don't see any scriptural reason at all to be opposed uh, to uh, contraception. What? Oh. Good. Um, I have a suggestion for my wife. And that is, we have two evenings of medical ethics coming up tomorrow night, and that's a good question for tomorrow night. Life is hard. But uh, she's absolutely right. We have two evenings with uh, four people on the platform as a panel, and that would be a marvelous question for, the, for tomorrow night. So really and truly get to the mic tomorrow night for sure. Yes. Do you notice you notice what the head of the home means? Yes. I'd like to ask you for some specifics on a couple of um, points that uh, you brought up. Uh, first, on the judicial system, and secondly, on the education system. Uh, what? concrete uh, steps would you suggest to removing the justices that are now in office since they're there for life uh, and what you know what can we do what can we do within the system about the judges that are there and then on you can that's I can see why this system was set up because theoretically you know if a person is there for life they're not uh, not uh, subject to uh, personal pressures that say the, the president is the poor president. He, um, it's in Washington. They say that a president only has about one year to really be president, because it takes a certain amount of time to settle in, and then he has to start to think about re-election. But the judge is saved from that, so I can see why it was set up. But it really, it ends up being monstrous. In a, uh, if the judge is a bad judge, in these fundamental ways we're talking about. I don't mean dishonest judge, but a bad judge in, these, uh, in the wrong view of life. And uh, there is no way to remove a person. It's practically impossible to remove a, a judge except for a just gross, uh, gross dishonesty. And this brings you back to the appointing of the judges, which then ought to be done with care. And where we, can bring, we can't do much about the judges that are there but we, we should uh, exert the influence we can uh, to see that the proper kind of judges are appointed. And then this goes back to electing the proper kind of people that are going to appoint the judges and letting no, let them know our, uh, our thinking. For instance, the uh, Carter is a good illustration as a president who uh, he appointed more judges than anybody ever has before, I think, any other, because there was a new law came in about judges. And uh, overwhelmingly, he appointed awful judges. They were just awful judges. Some of the most, one of the most important courts in the whole United States is the 
appellate court in Washington, D.C., because it's the court that decides if government agencies are uh, carrying out the law, and therefore they really, the judges, those judges can shape what the agencies do. And some of the people he appointed to that court were some of the worst judges that have ever been appointed in the whole United States history. Very clearly humanist, completely so. Activist judges in the bad sense. There they are. And he had one term, but those people go on to the life of, uh, of his uh, children, maybe grandchildren. So you, I don't think, and on the other hand, I don't think we, we would have a chance to change the system because there would be enough arguments. First of all, the inertia uh, of the situation, and then there would be some good arguments, as I gave first, as to why the system was made in the first place. So I don't think we have a chance to change the system. You always have to fight for, there's enough things to fight for. Uh, you have to decide what's possible. This is one thing I don't think could be changed. So the, the hope is to elect the kind, right kind of people who appoint the judges and then to make known to that person that it's important to us that he appoints the right kind of judges. This is about all we can do. And we're stuck with the ones we got. Yeah, that's true, and of course some of the, that's worth saying, um, of course at the present time there are various, um, various bills have been brought into Congress in the light of the abortion ruling especially uh, to try to uh, limit the Supreme Court's power. I would be in favor of those bills in general. You're, you're quite right about this. But as far as the judge himself is concerned, what I've said is that you can't get rid of it. Yes. Yes, I think that there should that we should have freedom to have Christian private schools, uh, and the uh, increasingly as the public schools become impossible as they are in some locations, I don't see any other solution. Um, just as a matter of um, principle, though, I would have to acknowledge that that 30 years ago, let us say. Uh, I wasn't, I didn't feel by any means that having Christian schools should be a matter of uh, Christian uh, principle. Though if the individual wanted to send his children to Christian schools or her children to Christian schools, they should be allowed. But increasingly we need them in a lot of situations because the public schools have gotten so poor. But then I would want to say very firmly, then they ought to be really two things. First, really Christian schools, and then secondly, really good schools which is absolutely crucial. And you can have a Christian school and find out that in reality it doesn't understand what, uh, the, what life is all about after all, and that is the interrelationship of all the disciplines, and that being a Christian school, uh, all the disciplines should be infected. I've known a quote-unquote Christian schools so that really the only difference is that they have a chapel, and that's not a Christian school that would be of any interest to anybody who thinks at all. 
Secondly, it ought to be, Christian schools ought to be really good schools with a realization, and here you enter into not confusing humanism and the humanities that I mentioned. Christians should be the best educated people in the, in the totality of life. God has made the whole world. Christ died so that in the coming of the second coming of Christ, the whole world is going to be redeemed in all its parts. The big illustration is that God is interested not just in our soul, but in the resurrection of the body. And that, therefore, the totality of life should be looked at in richness. So, therefore, Christian schools should be uh, really very, very uh, interested in a really good education, a very proper legalism to Christianity, of course, but uh, in a poor sense, so that uh, in reality things are ruled out uh, that I don't believe should be ruled out in a real educational system. I'll just say quickly, and then pass on, as I see it, there are three different views. Uh, one of them is that Christian education, whether it's in the home or whether it is in the school, is by uh, blocking out huge sections of life and teaching in a very narrow circle and uh, not, allowing, not allowing the young person, the student, whatever it is we're talking about, uh, really to come in contact with the, with, uh, with the, with the problems of life and even, even the uh, comprehension of the sin of life in a certain sense, not the practice of it, but the comprehension of it. The opposite extreme, and so I've done some Christian schools where they teach philosophy, for example, they follow this method, and that is they just give the students all the philosophic views or all the English literature books up to uh, modern ones. And the poor, the poor st student just gets it, plum, like this, you know. Um, I'd just say neither of these are Christian education or a Christian view of, of training uh, young people in the home or the school. As I see it, on the level, the appropriate age level, uh, the appropriate age level, a real Christian education is opening all the doors, but only at the speed uh, that the teacher, whoever it is in the home or the school, is able to give the Christian answers to the problems raised by the world which surrounds us. And that, to my mind, is a Christian education. And it can be done. It has to be done with care. Uh, it has some dangers. But the opposite of overprotection has equal dangers because these things are all about us today and if the child isn't given or the young person isn't given the, the answers as to why these things are wrong and why they're destructive, if that's so, they're going to get it from outside anyway. You can't, you can't keep them in a watertight compartment especially a day like ours. I just say it can be done. Our, our four children were uh, submitted to the questions raised at La Brie. Uh, we never kept our youngsters away from the, from the question and answer periods. And believe me, at La Brie you get every question you can ever think of. And uh, the only time I ever sent Frankie out of the room was a little, tiny little guy is when people began to ask me questions about sexual perversions when he was really a tiny little guy. Then I'd suggest that something, you know, his mother needed him or something. Uh, 
But except for that one area, and that's only when he was a tiny little guy. As soon as he got a very much bigger little guy, he decided on those questions too. Um, but of course, then it's, it becomes incumbent upon the school educa the educational system or the parent to give the Christian answers and not just let them get it all dumped on their head without the answers. So I, I do believe in private schools. Notice I said private schools. I believe in private schools, and I think it's absolutely abominable, and t another form of tyranny, when the state says you can't have private schools. This is, this is real tyranny. And then I believe in private schools, which are Christian, but Christian in the way I've tried to present it. And I would say again that 30 years ago, I didn't think they were as necessary. It doesn't mean they were wrong then. But I didn't think they were as necessary as they increasingly are in many of the communities in this country. Yes. Have we not seen all your um, reclaiming the world series? I'm wondering, when you speak of civil disobedience, um, do you emphasize the individual response or a organized unity response? If I can go into that question a little bit. But always uh, the thing that I keep coming back to because it's so important, always on the appropriate level. Uh, you don't do the more extreme thing until you have tried the less extreme. And uh, you will notice that uh, in, the, in the, a Christian manifesto, I stress very, very strongly that it's the individual Christian's responsibility under the leading of the Lord to know what is his responsibility. And I could visualize just as in many situations, that two different Christians would feel that uh, feel that the time is right or the time is not right uh, to necessitate the next step of, of uh, uh, civil disobedience going up the ladder. How could, um, given the example or the complicated problem of America and its history of uh, civil religion, how can um, Christians respond? in an organized fashion when there isn't any unified church or national church. If you look at the example of uh, Poland, you see a national church rising and, and organizing a response, an effective response against the civil authority. But how can the, um, the American Christians do well, that? First of all, the individual must know what, the, what they feel their responsibility is. But then you can visualize that a group of individuals uh, a group of individuals bound together in various ways, family or uh, other type of organizational relationship, would come to a conclusion, uh, conclusion that they would be, that each individual was being led and then they would work in the, work together. Uh, I don't see a problem to this. For example, I could visualize a situation which a sit down in the Supreme Court, I think would be a completely proper act. Uh, I'm not saying it is tonight, but I could visualize the situation that it would be. Now, if uh, one person thought this, they'd go and sit down. Uh, if, uh, if 50 felt it, or 100, or 200 felt it, they would do it simultaneously. I don't see the problem at this. I see a practical question of when it's time, but not in, not in, uh, not in the actual uh, uh, doing it. The same would be with withholding paying of taxes. I could visualize that uh, a time would come which Christians, some Christians, would feel very specifically they shouldn't pay their taxes if their money was going toward abortions. 
So the individual must always be the one who has the freedom of conscience. And we have no right to, one person would have no right to lay then this feeling of responsibility on another person. They would have to know for themselves. But on the other hand, you could well imagine people uh, talking this over in a neighborhood or in a community or in a larger setting and a number of people coming to the conclusion simultaneously it was right and therefore there'd be a bigger body than one doing it uh, at the same time. I think this is the way it should come. And these things mustn't be just uh, thought of as uh, impossible. As a matter of fact, I think there's a real question in abortion. Fortunately, with a Hyde Amendment mass, money isn't being used for the uh, uh, for abortions in the same way. And there is an attempt being made, more than an attempt, it's actually been done, at the uh, Bureau of Health and Health and what is it, Health and Welfare, Swikers Department, anyway, that Dr. Cooper's in, the Surgeon General, is, are trying to uh, have the legal department. Uh, say that any hospital that uh, any hospital that performs a fantasize like this baby being starved to death and recently you know uh, can't receive any Medicaid money which would shut down about 90% of the hospitals in the United States and the, of course it doesn't touch the heart of the principle in a way it should be it should be illegal to murder uh, but at least it's a, it's, a, it's a step in the right direction. So there are things being done which hopefully, well, more will be done, and then hopefully we should keep fighting and never give up fighting and have it, have it be made illegal to kill human life no matter what its age. And you must remember, of course, in this, not only I won't sidetrack myself, that the... Um, that the that indeed it would be a real, a real, very serious question whether your taxes should go toward uh, killing babies. But at the present moment, the relief is is there's a substantial relief for the Hyde Amendment and this other thing. But if it continues, if it continues unabated, uh, it isn't to be thought of as unthinkable that Christians will begin to say, "I won't pay a, par a portion of my taxes." as long as this portion is going toward the murdering of human, innocent human life. So when, when we say, when we, when we clap and stand, for example, at my speech, you must realize you're saying something that you're affirming at that point, something very serious, that there does come a point in which it is uh, not only a privilege but a duty to disobey your government, and disobeying your government shouldn't be thought of first in the level of appropriateness of, of charging up the capital steps or something, uh, but it should be thought of in the realms of uh, the sit-in, the realms of uh, the picketing, as I mentioned in the St. Louis, the abortion clinic, the Cardinal Theological Seminary students. Uh, I'm not saying anybody else should do it, but certainly they, it's, as a Christian, you shouldn't think they were wrong. Uh, Absolutely, as there was no, no debate by any means. In fact, in that case, I think probably they were right. And I was glad, so glad the president of that school supported them. Um, so you'd have sit-ins, you'd have 
picketing of this sort of thing, the non paying the taxes. Um, there's all kinds of things that on the appropriate levels that it means. But the thing to get fixed, first of all, is the thing I stressed in the lecture, and that is that the bottom line is the factor that uh, when the government when the government commands that which is contrary to the law of God, uh, then uh, it is open to being disobeyed. And the individual Christian, notice the emphasis, the individual Christian has to decide when that moment has arrived for him. And then you have no right to bind other people's conscience at a point like this. It must be an individual thing that operates. And then coming back over here, I can visualize it being more than the individual. The groups would come to this decision. Sobering, of course. But after all, we live in a fallen world, so there's lots of things that's sobering in a fallen world. And of course, as I say in the Christian Manifesto, one of the big problems is there's so many kooky people around. And that's true. Uh, but just because there are dangers doesn't mean that you don't have to still think it through and think of what uh, principle really means in these regards and be ready to practice it if we come to the place where we must. And if you come to the place where under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the Lordship of Christ, you you decide this is the moment, then one of these steps have to be taken. Then, of course, there's one more footnote, though. You must recognize that if you take it, you mustn't be surprised if you have to pay a price for it. If you break the law, you've got to be willing to spend the, to, to spend the jail so, uh, time. So uh, you, mustn't, uh, you mustn't do these things. Just like you mentioned Poland. Uh, the people in Poland in fighting for liberty and uh, solidarity was right against the monstrous Marx, Engels, Lenin system. Um, totally right. And I, I was very, very annoyed at some Christians and then some of the press that tried to dump the uh, responsibility back on solidarity because they, people said they went too fast. Well, maybe they did, but all they were struggling for was what we what we take as a minimum of rights. It wasn't their fault; it was the system's fault. In a place, in a system, in a situation like that, situation like that, you would have uh, the poles standing out and doing things. But then they, they mustn't be surprised if they do this but that some of them end up in jail. Do you see what I'm saying? And the same would be true with you. You've got to accept the fact that. You're playing, you're playing in a, in a uh, real situation, a realistic situation, in which you pay the price for your principles, and not a romantic, idealistic one, in which you think you can do some of these things in sort of a romantic, idealistic way and, it, uh, and not pay a price for it. It costs to be faithful to the Lord, is what I always say, in all these areas. Yes. Dr. Schaefer, and before I begin the question, I'd like to say that I realize that this is a question that could quickly become judgmental and should be approached with a lot of sensitivity. In your film, Reclaiming the World, you discuss easy divorce as a problem of the modern church. Isn't easy marriage between a man and a woman who, do not, uh, who are not committed to the lordship of Christ over marriage just as degrading to... Uh, 
just as degrading to the modern church as the simple divorce or say between two people, you know, marriage between two people and your second definition of the term Christian. It's not just as, because marriage is a marriage is an ordinance of God. And it certainly shouldn't be entered into lightly. This is true. And you do have an absolute in the Bible in regard to it, and that is Christians should only marry Christians and not non-Christians. So if, you, if a Christian marries a non-Christian, you could make a parallel, perhaps. Yes, you could. Remove the path, perhaps, uh, to divorce. But you have a parallel here, then, that it's against the law of God for a Christian to marry a non-Christian, and it is against the law of God uh, to get a, a divorce outside of the biblical, uh, the biblical commands concerning divorce. It's absolute. Uh, in my San Diego speech, uh, the inerrancy of the Bible, they gave me the topic, what is the meaning of inerrancy? I think it was like that. I think that was the topic. And I pointed out that we must stand very strongly against those who are uh, bringing, who are bending the Bible to merely fit, fit the surrounding culture by playing down the fact that the Bible is uh, without, mis without mistake. But that equally we, dis uh, we dishonor the Bible if we say we hold to the, a high view of the Bible and then we don't live under it. And the illustration I used was divorce, easy divorce. And there I sat down the fact in, the, in that speech that historically Christians have understood, um, have understood three different positions concerning the scripture. And Christians, have, uh, good, Christians who really hold to a high view of the Bible have differed. And the first view, some people have held that there is, there are, there is no grounds for divorce and remarriage. The Roman Catholic Church has held this, and the Church of England has held it up to the fairly, almost the recent, or just into the recent past. The second view is that following the commands of statements of Christ, uh, that the, uh, if, that there is a possibility of divorce and remarriage if there's sexual infidelity. I said the possibility of because it doesn't say that every time there's sexual infidelity there must, infidelity, there must be a divorce, but the possibility of it. Um, the third is taking the Corinthians passage, the one which the Westminster Confession of Faith holds, for example, and one which I think is a biblical position, that there are two grounds for uh, divorce and remarriage, and the one is sexual infidelity, and the second is uh, a desertion, which as the Westminster Confession puts it, neither the magistrates, that's the civil, uh, civil authorities, nor the church can cure. Now, however, you have these three possibilities, and you might imagine people right here in this room would differ on these three, but as soon as you go beyond these three and make any other reason for a divorce, you're absolutely outside of Scripture. You're absolutely outside the commands of the Word of God. They're just marriages for life. People don't realize uh, the, the wonder and the seriousness of marriage. Something very mystical about marriage as well as physical good marriages. Uh, now then, as we look at the Bible, therefore, 
of the old marriage vows that we most people say, even though today they don't mean it at all, of sickness and in health, for death do us part. Well, this is the biblical view without any question. So consequently, to get a, an easy divorce, an, an unbiblical divorce, is an absolute disobeying the word of God. And then, as, I, as I've said, that would be parallel, though, that a Christian isn't to marry a non-Christian. That's fair enough to make that parallel. But you must be careful, because you have an absolute thing in, in marriage. It isn't relative. It isn't subject to the social changes of our own day. It's something that's commanded by God and should be entered into. When I've performed, you know, hundreds of marriages. And I must say, as I see these young couples come along, and most of them I know very well and love them very much, but as I hear them giving their vows, my own four children, uh, and then uh, others, many that we've seen, one to Christ and others in marriages, uh, it's very sobering to hear two young people uh, in their early 20s or something, or earlier still, uh, stand up and make a vow that they're going to this is going to be the man or and the woman for them for life. It's beautiful, but it's very sobering. And the um, to break this is an absolute uh, absolute disobedience to the word of God. I just want to say we live in a very sick age. Nobody thinks of continuity anymore. No, no one thinks of faithfulness in, in an absolute sense. Um, the, uh, Frankie was very, was it Frankie? I think it was, I think it was Frankie. Yeah, that was shocked when he came to this country and moved from Switzerland and, and we were talking about bringing in lawyers and to, to, to talk about uh, financial things and the, uh, the lawyer said, well, who's your wife's lawyer? And just the question is devastating. And the whole, the overwhelming tendency now not, not to get married until you've worked out a contract of how you're going to divide your money when you get divorced. That's it. Thousands of people wouldn't get married without, say, without having the lawyers meet together first. You can't have marriage like that. It's crazy, you know. I mean, if you get married with it in the back of your mind of it being... If you if you didn't don't uh, if it doesn't work you're going to just walk out of it. Sure, it isn't going to work. It's guaranteed. So we must. I just say as Christians we've got to indeed fight for the Scripture and the, and the fact that without mistake in every area in which we speak. But once we take that position, which I hope you all do, uh, then we must live under it, and we mustn't begin to bend the Bible to the cultural things of our own day of which I think one of the clearest illustrations is this idea of letting down on the seriousness of marriage uh, and going beyond these three points that I mentioned as possible points of discussion. Uh, you can just say it. That there are no other points of discussion. And this whole drift that we're into now, I don't know if we have it here in Minnesota or not, of no fault divorce. You must realize the reason there's no fault divorce is because in modern man's thinking there's no fault everything. Now I'm being very serious. A very, very serious thing. There is no guilt. There's only guilt feelings. 
and no fault divorce is a reflection of no fault everything, which means uh, which is a reflection of there are no absolute. So we have. Um, so I would just say to to your question, uh, no, I, I I would let a parallel pass in who you should marry as to Christian and non-Christian. But outside of that, the thing in marriage shouldn't be allowed to be relativized in the sense that, well, it's, uh, uh, marriage is, making marriages also is, uh, can be uh, uh, easily done, too easily done maybe. Uh, but, uh, and therefore, to make this a parallel to easy divorce, they don't, they're not the same. Once we enter into the contract in the presence of God, it's to be kept no matter what, except in these faces I've given. Yes. Hi, Dr. Schaefer. Um, I read John Whitehead's article in the Texas Tech Law Review. I thought it was really good. But uh, I had a problem with it later, and I've been struggling with it since to a certain extent. And that is, he talked a lot about the myth of, of neutrality and um, that you couldn't, that a state couldn't try to base its law system on two contradictory uh, belief systems. On what now? Just on, a last sentence. On two contradictory belief systems. Okay. okay. And I was wondering how that would, um, what kind of a relationship would that statement have for a pluralistic society? in law and in, uh, and in the educational system. Yes, it is a problem. I would agree. And we must realize that, as I spoke before, of working on two levels. You have to work on two levels and this simultaneously. And this two levels, as I say, it was related to the other two levels I mentioned. You have to see that it, the freedoms we have in this country are only rooted in the fact that the original uh, framers of the uh, of our country really did believe in uh, in God, in a Creator. Could have been deistic sense or non deistic, but in a Creator, or as it expressed, nature and nature is God, which can be given a deistic twi twist, but really wasn't deistic in the uh, in the way it was stated at first. Uh, now then, out of this is the this is the only basis in which you can have freedoms. And it's a very simple reason why, and that is uh, we speak of certain inalienable rights. Well, if you once speak of inalienable rights, there must be a somebody with a capital S there to give the rights. It's very simple. If the states. If a state gives the rights, they're not inalienable by definition. So no humanistic system, in uh, you know, general de state, uh, de uh, de definition of humanism, no humanistic system ever can speak of inalienable rights. If the state gives the rights, then the states can take it away. So the sense we have of inalienable rights must come out of the uh, the the framework in which the United States was, was founded, the other won't work. And the clearest illustration of it would be the Soviet bloc, where nobody has inalienable rights. 
and in which the state gives the rights and the state can take them away and the states can change them at any time as well, the rights. Um, so therefore, point one would be uh, you can't have a dualistic concept of what would give the rights, know where our rights came from. They came from the Judeo-Christian uh, framework and specifically the Reformation framework. Then secondly, however, you take the next step and now we come to the place this is why the, dual, the two layers are parallel to the question I answered over here, is that now we come to a pluralistic system. Well, you have to know two things. You have to know that the rights uh, in my speech, I said that the humanist system uh, could not have given us the freedoms we have. He couldn't. I would make a parallel, incidentally, uh, as I do in how shall we in how, stress and how shall we then live, uh, a humanist system, a really materialistic humanist system, I don't think would have ever brought forth modern science either. I don't think it ever brought it forth. Uh, now, and I, my, I don't know what it means in being maintaining it. Uh, that's the end, end parenthesis on the science. So it's worth thinking through the two things together. Now, when you come to when you come to the next step of the where we are at the present time, you have to recognize that the freedoms couldn't have been produced by anything else, and yet we have to function at the present time with uh, a group of people that uh, the uh, a certain proportion of which, and maybe the majority of which, no longer hold the framework which could have produced the freedoms. Then you have to function. Then you have to function trying to bring the Christian principles, hold the Christian principles there, uh, for not only the fact of history, because that's what historically the Constitution has ever meant, and not only because it's right, but because indeed it is for the good of the uh, of the whole population. Remember what I said before. Didn't I say it here that if there is an, an infinite God, didn't I go through that? If there's an infinite God and we're made in his image, didn't I say that? And then the laws are, are his laws and the Bible are a reflection of his character. Then that which his laws are, are not only that which are right, but with that which is for the best fulfillment of people as they were originally made in the image of God. So once we come to the place where uh, we realize that the freedoms never would have been produced by humanism and we're rapidly losing it under humanism, yet we have a number of people now who are no longer hold these views, we then, it seems to me, out of love as well as fidelity to God, and not just to abstract history uh, in what the framers meant, though that's important in discussion, uh, we then struggle to maintain these things on the basis of Christian principles in reference to law and government uh, for the simple reason that it's right, but not only that it's right, but it's for that which we know is in general for the best good of the whole population, even those who wouldn't hold these views. So I think we're functioning on, on two levels again. The recognition that in a way it's temporary, in a way, it's only going to be partial for sure. 
unless there is a Christian consensus again, such as there was in the early colonies. Uh, but on the other hand, that it's still worth fighting for these things on the basis that it, it, indeed it is for the good of people, for their best good in the way that uh, they are, as I say, no matter what they say they are, remember that I said in another question, no matter what they say they are, they are not what they say they are, they are what they are. I think we should carry it out on two levels. Yet at the same time, it's very difficult, I agree. When John wrote in the Texas uh, Tech Law Review, uh, it, it was, uh, I was struck by his writing. Incidentally, a very interesting relationship. John was very deep in law, of course, and brilliant in law, but he said it was, how should we then live? And my emphasis on Lex Rex and Samuel Rutherford that caused him to have things drop in place, which is very, very, I'm very thankful. Then it turned around, of course, and now he's the one who is a specialist in law, is making a special contribution in this. But having said this, uh, it is easier, it was easier to state in the area of the Texas Tech thing as it is when you get into the practice, just as you pointed out. But I still think that it's right for us to keep functioning in these areas on the basis it's for people's, we know it's for people's best good. And I just say you can notice by observation. Uh, just take, we talk about broken marriages, the ease of broken marriages, the lack of continuity in, in people's lives. Are they really happy? No. Are we really happy in the promiscuousness we're allowing? No. Are we really happy in everybody doing their own thing? No. Uh, they're not happy for the simple reason that they long for what they really are and what they were made for. Marriage is a perfect example. Why do these people get married a half a dozen times? Why don't they just live together? Why bother? Well, it's because there's, it's, a, it's a testimony uh, for a, a, a longing, for some sort of continuity, even though they, by their thinking they just guarantee they aren't going to have it. The longing for the male-female relationship to be something more than merely uh, physical for some sense of continuity. And the Woody Allen films always come to those here. Uh, in Annie Hall in Manhattan, the end of those films, if you've looked at them, just tear me to shreds because Woody Allen longs for some kind of continuity beyond merely the sexual relationship and he has no basis for it. That doesn't mean he doesn't long for it. Now we as Christians know why he longs for it and it seems to me then we have we have a, a, not only a reason of rightness, but a reason of love, of trying to keep our Christian principles in the area of government and law, uh, because even if he never becomes a Christian, it's still for his best good. So I would suggest the answer lies in this, this double thing, even though we have the pluralistic society now. So I'm going to quit saying I'm getting tired. I'll take just one more, I'm sorry. Yes. Is this on? There. A slightly... No, still not on. Test. There we go. A slightly different question regarding civil disobedience. Uh, in the situation of a missionary who is in a country 
where there's some kind of change in government and that through a coup or something and then um, many social injustices occurring I've heard it said that uh, well you're placed in a dilemma whether or not to be outspoken against the government and do something about that and knowing full well that you're going to be expelled from the country and therefore lose your ministry whether it be in medicine or uh, whatever you're involved with um, what would your advice be to that missionary who is confronted with the I don't think it would be a general rule that anybody would have a right to give uh, I think what you'd have to say is that you'd be the individual just as when the question of civil disobedience in your own country it would be a matter of the individual missionary and then maybe the mission praying it through and thinking it through and weighing up what is involved in just the kind of situation you've pictured and what their individual responsibility and duty and privilege would be at the given moment. I don't think it would be a general rule. I could visualize that the situation would be... You see, the, we all want to preach the gospel, but you wouldn't pay any price to preach the gospel. There would be a price you wouldn't pay. Um, at least I feel that this is very clear to me. If you, um, if in order to, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a very good illustration because it bears on, on parallels to in our own moment of history. And the Shinto shrine worship in Japan, uh, when the Japanese empire began to roll through Korea, uh, the Japanese told the Christian churches they could keep preaching the gospel, providing they put a Shinto shrine in the corner of the church. The Christians at that time divided. The liberals very clearly took, quickly took, they didn't have any trouble making a decision. <laughs> they just put up the Shinto shrine, seriously. But even among some of the Bible-believing Christians, there were voices raised that for the sake of continuing to preach the gospel, they would be willing to put up the Shinto shrine. And it was uh, a very... The, the Japanese tortured some of the young Christians in the adolescent years terribly. Horrible, I won't tell you the tortures. Uh, because they wouldn't bow to the Shinto shrines. But now, in a situation like that, as a pastor, would you put up the Shinto shrine? I'd say no. You'd pass the line of the price you would pay to preach the gospel. Do you see what I'm saying? I, would say, I feel exactly the same way towards the, the Soviet system. There's the, thing you, there's the line you wouldn't cross to preach the gospel uh, in the Soviet system either. Uh, and... Uh, you decide where that line would be. So therefore, it isn't an absolute, notice how I'm moving along here, that, that you automatically assume that you would pay any price to preach the gospel. That isn't so. There's a line that you wouldn't cross. Shindo Shrine would be very, very clear. Telling the... Uh, telling the Soviet parents that they should obey the law not to train their, not to teach the children of Christ would be a line you couldn't cross, seems to me. You'd have to support them clearly, regardless of whether you could preach the gospel then or not. 
in the geographical location. So in each case, it would seem to me then that the individual missionary would have to decide. And I could visualize two situations. I could visualize a situation in where the injustice and tyranny was so terrible uh, that uh, there would be no way to be silent and honor God. And you'd speak out, even if it meant you got shot, but even if it meant you got kicked out of the country and therefore couldn't, quote-unquote, preach the gospel. On the other hand, I could visualize another situation in which there are things that you would want to speak out about, and yet at the same time they wouldn't be of such a nature uh, that uh, you would feel that you should uh, pay the price of speaking out against them and therefore being kicked out of the country and not being able to help this or that Indian tribe. Do you see what I'm saying? You'd have both. And you'd have no way in the world of knowing, of making a generalization. And I think in all probability the individual missionary would have to decide for themselves and the whole mission board which the situation is. But I, I would just end this evening by laying down the statement that though we are commanded to preach the gospel to every creature, it doesn't mean that there aren't some things you wouldn't do, uh, you wouldn't do uh, in this total situation, even though it would mean that you couldn't preach the gospel. Um, I have an etching that I. I have, an, I have a little back office where I keep lots of things on the walls and storage and so on. Uh, very moving to me. It was very helpful to me to think through some of these things when I was younger. It's called, the etching is called One Grain of Incense and She Shall Be Free. And it's, it's in the old style of etchings. Um, you know, not, not the classic period of Durer in, in between when they weren't so good. But the message is overwhelming to me. And that is, it shows a very beautiful, beautiful girl. And she's standing in front of a Roman altar in the arena. You can see the beasts behind her, you see. And uh, the, her, obviously, person who loves her, a brother, her fiancé, is trying to take her hand and make her pick up a piece of incense and drop it into the on the altar, and the statue of Diane standing there, um, goddess of fertility, connected with Ephesus. And, the, uh, and if she'd only drop that piece of incense in, she could go free. And obviously, from the look on her face, she's not going to. Now, I would say that's true with our personal lives, but it's also with our ministry. There's just some things that you cannot do to save your own life, and there's some things you cannot do even to the quote-unquote preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel wouldn't excuse, wouldn't excuse the burning of the incense. Do you see what I'm saying? So we, can, we must be very careful not to lose our way here, or, or we're going to be very perverted. And that is the fact that, of course, we're commanded to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. But we must be very, very careful to realize that loyalty to God, loyalty to his commands, uh, these things are, uh, are also present. And we mustn't excuse anything at all that is 
the totality of things, regardless of what, just under the banner of preaching the gospel. That's really a perversion of the biblical, what the Bible teaches. Yes, well, I'll stop and I'm tired, so I'm going to quit.